Hello and welcome to the Exeter John Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Tina Nazarian. I recently met up with Corey Doctorow. He's a science fiction author, blogger, and activist. He was in San Jose, California for Worldcon, a science fiction convention. We had a broad-ranging conversation that touched on everything from surveillance in K-12 schools to open access publishing in higher education. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Fusion Conference. Join education and nonprofit leaders from around the country this October to discuss how learning sciences, social emotional learning, and technology can advance personalized learning for the whole learner. Visit fusion.edsurge.com to register. Today I'm here with Corey Doctorow, a science fiction author, blogger, and activist. Corey, thanks for being here with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, Corey, I wanted to start off with a question about creativity. Schools today expose students uh, to technology in a variety of ways, be it through Minecraft or an iPad. Do you think that um, the way schools are exposing kids to tech is helping them be creative, or are those ways too stifling? You know, I think that the promise of technology is its ability to provide individualized uh, interactions for the people who use it. And, you know, education is clearly not a one-size-fits-all activity. And one of the crises of education, especially tech education, is that we try to walk this line between the things that we're afraid of kids doing and the things that we hope they'll do. And it requires, or, or it results at least, in a high degree of control. So, you know, I, I don't know that I'd like have any great answers about creativity. When I, when I think about electronic media and pedagogy, though, the thing that I worry about is that um, our systems of protecting kids from the real dangers of the internet revolve around surveillance. And they normalize surveillance and they are necessarily incompatible with any kind of self-help measures to understand surveillance and to eliminate or moderate the amount of surveillance you're under. So if you're a student whose school is completely reliant on surveillance tools to stop you from seeing genitals or whatever it is they're worried about, then anything you do to learn about how that system works and stop it ends up running up against the school's own you know, kind of core defense mechanism we really do need kids to understand and be literate about surveillance. You know, the, we have, we're in this you know, great global conversation about social media and what Shoshana Zuboff calls um, surveillance capitalism. And kids you know, are perfectly capable of understanding that stuff. You know, if there's anyone who understands what it means to be manipulated by people who think they have your best interests at heart, it's kids. And I think we need a rethink of the, the whole program because it, it can't be grounded in surveillance if we are also going to produce good citizens who uh, understand and resist surveillance. Do you think that schools are shaping kids to have certain ideas about technology? Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. Uh, you know, there's, there's a presumption, for example, that being technologically literate is good. I share that presumption, you know. Um, but there's also presumptions about what technological literacy means, so the extent to which you color within the lines or, or rethink it. I mean, again, this is the tension of all computer science education, is that you want to, you want to teach people to sort of unleash their creativity and their innovation and to also shape tools to their hands and so on. But the actual pedagogical method is uh, in many ways antithetical to it. 
And so uh, tech education is, is in this tension, but schools especially, you know, elementary schools especially, are, are struggle with this. Um, and, you know, there's an argument being made these days that there's a need for more surveillance in schools. Where do you stand on that issue? How much surveillance do you think is appropriate? Well, I think that it's, like with many of these debates, the reason the debate is hard is because we are talking about short-term instrumental goals and long-term strategic goals. So, you know, obviously, like, school's purpose is to produce well-rounded, self-actualizing, self-starting, full-fledged citizens who are capable of participating in a democracy and being in the workplace and having good interpersonal relations. And so, you know, it, if you kind of took another domain like interpersonal relations, you could say, well, we, bullying is a problem. Bullying is a problem. The problem of bullying could be prevented by just not letting kids talk to each other. Like, that would be a short-term instrumental uh, goal that would absolutely take a real bite out of bullying, but we can understand immediately why it's like not a good one. Right, and, social effects would be bad. Yeah, and so, you know, normalizing surveillance for kids, on the one hand, ill-equips them to deal, to be literate about surveillance in the world, but on the other hand, means that a lot of the things that we hope that they'll learn to moderate on their own instead gets moderated by these extrinsic motivations, right? That instead of having good interrelations with other people because good interrelations are fulfilling and produce good outcomes, your good interrelations uh, exist as a kind of formal exercise that you engage in for fear of reprisals. And, you know, uh, whenever we talk about education, we struggle with intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. We want intrinsically motivated students, but extrinsic motivation is powerful, it's quick, and it achieves instrumental goals, right? So, you know, at a certain point we say, well, we don't care if the reason you're not bullying the kid next to you is because you realize that bullying is wrong or you're afraid of being punished for bullying. What we care about is that the kid next to you isn't bullied, right? And, and that is a totally legitimate argument, but it also produces someone that as soon as the uh, fear of reprisal goes away may return to bullying. And so I think that those instrumental... If we are going to use surveillance of kids to achieve some instrumental goal, it has to be as a kind of wedge to open a space in which we can teach kids to achieve the same goal without that extrinsic threat of retaliation through surveillance. I understand that you yourself had a different type of schooling. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, I went through very traditional schools until the fourth grade. And then starting in fourth grade, I went to a K-8 school in Toronto run by the Toronto Board of Education, or the North York Board of Education then, so public school. That was K-8 in a single classroom. And older kids taught younger kids, and you were self-directed. So there was a formal curriculum, but you could opt out of it. So, you know, there was a point at which I decided I wanted to um, just focus on math. And I, I came in one day and just, like, was really, like, I really got some momentum going in math, right? Like, I solved some problems. Something fell into place for me, and I really wanted to run with it. And you could just go to the file drawer and pull out the black line masters and just work on the math and then go to the teacher or an older student and say, I need some help with the math. And, like... That's why we teach, right? We teach to get to students to the point where they catch fire on their own, right? We're kind of blowing on the embers, hoping that they'll catch fire on their own. I mean, that's how I learned to read, too. You know, I, I had had, you know, the traditional kind of reading education that everybody has. And then in second grade, I, I walked into the classroom, and uh, on the shelf was a copy of Alice in Wonderland, and I pulled it down and started reading it before the bell rang. 
And I just sat down behind the cubbies and started reading it. My teacher was brave enough and, and kind enough and kind of insightful enough to just say, it doesn't matter if he goes behind on our measurement unit today or whatever, you know, let, let him read because he's in a moment in which reading and he are well-matched, right? And so that, that was super powerful and effective for me. Do you think that this type of self-directed learning you experience should be the ideal in schools around the world? Well, so that's clearly the goal, right? I, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, I don't think that there is anything except self-directed learning. Like the point of non-self-directed learning is to jumpstart the process in which uh, you are not having facts recited that you are filing away, but in which you're synthesizing things in order to give them meaning and context. You know, it, I, I mean, if you want to call rote learning learning, I guess it is, but it's it's not learning that humans need to do anymore. Like, like um, computers are always going to be better at the rote recitation of facts than we are. But synthesis, context, knowing what question to ask the computer, those are things that, like, we're we're are becoming more important day by day right like knowing which search terms to give to google is really important knowing being able to call to memory very easily or call to mind very easily all the facts that those search terms bring not as important we can always look that stuff up you know switching gears again a little bit you have had a lot to say about net neutrality and recently it was reversed how do you think that reversal is going to affect higher education institutions it affects higher education institutions as a subset of the way it affects all of our lives because, of course, the Internet is like the nervous system that, that uh, uh, binds together everything we do in the 21st century, right? Like everything we do now involves it and everything we'll do shortly from now will require it. And allowing cable operators and phone companies to act as gatekeepers means that all the things that we rely on pluralism or uh, competition uh, to promote are endangered, right? They'll be, I mean, it's not like they'll be killed, but they'll be harmed and they will, there's a kind of spiral where the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. The people with a lot of eyeballs will get more eyeballs and the people with fewer eyeballs will will have a harder time getting a, a foothold on an eyeball. I guess that's kind of a weird metaphor. And so, yeah, no, I think that this is like, I think that it, it's catastrophic for all human endeavor but I also think that it's a mistake to think of net neutrality as being won or lost. You know, the tele- this is an area actually where Tim Wu has done a lot of really good work. He's um, first and foremost a competition scholar, and uh, he talks about how um, in, the longer an industry lasts, the less competitive it becomes because the more concentrated it will be and the greater the likelihood that any given executive used to work at one of the competitors and has these back channels. And, you know, they're, they're like... They're married to each other, and they're like godparents to each other's kids, and they are executors to each other's wills, and they're just they're bound together socially. And when they get bound together like that, the accelerant is that as they be, trust each other more, as they become more socially cohesive between these nominally competitive businesses, they also are able to set aside their differences and lobby for anti-competitive practices or rules that allow them to become more monopolistic. And so... Monopolism, concentration, and corruption are not fights you win. They're things you guard against, right? They're like a dynamic system that you have to keep pushing against. So a really good example of this is like in 1982, 
in really the last act of effective antitrust regulation before Ronald Reagan completely dismantled it, they broke up AT&T. And the baby bells, the, the phone companies that remained after AT&T was broken up, they were staffed by the executives that had run AT&T. They didn't like take up Zen Buddhism and move to an ashram, right? They, like, they hung around like Voldemort on the back of you know, the heads of these baby bells, nursing their power, growing together, making AT&T again. So you know, we had a loss with net neutrality. The thing we need to do is use that loss to galvanize a force to take back the ground we've lost. But having taken back that ground, greed in the telecom sector will not be vanquished. Right? And so there will be future fights about net neutrality and greed in the telecom sector and bad practice in the telecom sector that's good for telecoms and bad for the world will continue to happen. So it's a struggle we commit ourselves to forever, not a fight we win. Mm -hmm. Do you think that higher ed institutions will be at the forefront of that struggle, as you referenced? Well, they have been. You know, you have things like WiskNet in Wisconsin, where they, they, their statewide fiber networks really really good next generation networking being done as a combination of an academic project and a, um, a kind of self-help measure because especially, you know, you have a state that's very rural like Wisconsin, you have these state institutions that are really spread out. And so I think that like there are lots of educational institutions that are de facto ISPs. They're hamstrung by the very real needs of the IT department who, who you know, I'm an ex-IT executive, and I understand how this works, but, like, IT's ideal situation in some ways is that, like, nobody uses their computers anymore, right? Like, that would be, like, the most well-managed IT system is one where you build it all and then you don't have to support it because nobody's sucking up bandwidth and nobody's breaking their stuff and nobody's installing stuff and whatever. And so IT is always going to be in tension with the um, other needs. And, you know, there's a certain amount of sympathy for network discrimination in IT departments because one of the things, the dirty secret of IT, is its job would be a lot easier if they could just tell you which services you weren't allowed to use, right? And campuses were among the first institutions to be arm-twisted arm by the copyright industries into spying on all their users in order to um, prevent peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. And in that, uh, in that situation, the entertainment industry had allies in the IT departments because the IT departments just were worried about network congestion because of file sharing. And so you had this kind of unholy alliance between IT departments who I think like constitutionally were mostly on the sides of the users, but in this like instrumental, narrow, momentary struggle found themselves much more aligned with the Recording Industry Association of America. Interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, this alliance uh, and we're on the topic of you know the future and higher ed I wanted to ask you about OER it seems like open educational resources are something people always think are is about to take off but they never really do take off why do you think that is why do you think they haven't had well, their lasting moment I think that they have in the sense that like the fight is over about Wikipedia right and the the, the any any educator, who says don't use Wikipedia instead of teaching their students how to use Wikipedia is an idiot, right? You're just doing it wrong at that point. Because like your students, I mean, even if you hate Wikipedia, your attitude should be harm reduction, right? Because prohibition will get you nowhere. You know, on uh, in terms of uh, open access, like PLOS and PrePress, PrePubs, they're the like leading edge, right? Like nobody's 
you know, nobody, nobody anymore says, oh, a PLOS isn't a real journal. They may say, well, in my discipline, I am much more likely to get tenure if I'm publishing in a, in a you know, Springer journal. But nobody is like, well, I'm going to look down at my nose at you because you're in PLOS 1. Being in PLOS 1 is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think it's Clark's Law, like when, a, when an elderly distinguished scientist tells you something is possible, he's probably right. And when he tells you something is impossible, he's probably wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, I think the short run of OA, of open access, has been less successful than its, its most uh, enthusiastic boosters would have hoped. But its long-term trajectory is really obvious. Because we have such a broadly indexed set of uh, prepubs, and because the prepubs are indexed with DOIs, we can compare prepubs to journals, mm-hmm. and we can see what the journals did. And the journals uh, input in these, these pretty big data, database studies uh, you know, sort of data journalism studies where they're, do, they're like comparing huge corpuses of papers, the journals are contributing almost nothing, like really almost nothing to these papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, it, it's at this point just pure rent-seeking. And when you have judgments like Haughty Trust coming out of, you know, UMass Amherst, where, or, or was it UMass Amherst? Wherever Bobby Glushko mm-hmm. was when he got that judgment. When you have these judgments coming down, that allow schools to convert their their libraries to OA, you know, scanning them without permission from publishers and to share those with other institutions, you know, I think it's game over, mm-hmm. and and that's good, right? Let the let the science publishers and the scholarly publishers find a place where they add value because they they inarguably did add value before it got to the point where they were no longer needed. But there's that Upton Sinclair quote, right? It's impossible to explain something to someone when their paycheck depends on them not understanding it. You know, that now that they have become superfluous, they've just, all of their activities are centered around just sticking their fingers in their ears and, and shouting that they're essential. Let them find a way to be essential again. We haven't reached the apex of scientific publishing and scholarly publishing. Let them find something else to do that eventually we'll figure out how to replace with OA. And then let them find something else. That's the way markets are supposed to work, is things that are distinctive and non-commodified are supposed to become commodified through competition. And then that drives people to innovate and do new things. Is it fair to say that you think one day OER will be in the mainstream um, around the world? Yeah, I think that's uh, undoubted. It's just so inefficient, right? If you think about Common Core, for better or for worse, if, if you think about, like, every teacher who's getting ready to teach grade six math this year through the Common Core and is producing their own black line masters and their own curriculum and their own lecture notes and just like how you could stick that on a kind of variant of GitHub and instead they could all cooperate with each other or how, you know, obviously bad the um, e-learning materials are because they're, they're trapped in this thing that economists call the principal agent problem where the people who buy the resources don't have to use them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, watching my daughter work through like her Houghton Mifflin stuff from her local unified school district in, in Burbank, um, they're really terrible. Like they're just like on a kind of, just on a, on like a quality assurance level. They're just very badly done. And you can imagine that there's teachers all across America who are individually trying to work around this, who if they could just pool their resources, the way Wikipedia let people who are in communities of interest pool their resources, could very quickly overcome the initial hurdle of producing materials that are as good or better than anything Mifflin's making or Pearson or whoever, and, and then quickly shoot past them, you know.
we've covered a lot of ground with these questions. Is there anything you'd like to add or you know, tell our audience that you feel like you didn't have the opportunity? Well, to I can describe my thought experiment of how to do a, a, a great um, surveillance-oriented curriculum sure. unit that I think works across different grades. So I think, you know, I always meet students. When I go and I do like YA tours and I go to secondary schools, I meet students who read Little Brother and they, they're like, how do I hack my school's sensorware? Mm-hmm. And I always say don't do that because if you do that you could get expelled right or you could even be charged criminally under the computer fraud and abuse act right it's 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 really risky here's what you should do is you should discredit your school censorware so you and all your fellow students and your teachers and your librarians all know that the censorware is both overblocking and underblocking you've all seen stuff that you wish you hadn't and you've all been blocked from seeing things that were important your teachers have had the experience of preparing a lesson plan for the afternoon only to have the video blocked on YouTube over the lunch break, having to fall back to showing overheads or whatever. And so what you need to do is do ethnography. Go and study, go and ask your fellow students uh, and teachers about overblocking and underblocking. And then ask them about their circumvention methods because the other thing we know is that these tools don't work. So they only block people who are playing by the rules, but it's not hard to defect from playing by the rules. So document the ways in which these are inadequate to the purpose that they're set for. Then learn how to use the Freedom of Information Act to find out how much your school board has paid for this censorware. Then learn how to use stock uh, market filings to figure out who is behind your censorware, because they're the dirtiest companies in the world, because their primary customers are not corporate America and they're not schools. Their primary customers are repressive regimes in the Middle East and and Asia and sometimes in in, uh, autocratic African states. And they repackage stuff that's used by dictators to spy on their population to help corporate America and educational institutions spy on their stakeholders, their users. So find out who the war criminals are who get to see all of your data, right? who get to offshore every click you make, and then present it. Present it at the PTA. Present it at the board meeting. Call up local journalists and say, do you know how much my school district paid out of, it, out of your tax dollars to buy inadequate software from war criminals that everyone knows how to get around and interferes actively with their education while letting us see eye-watering pornography that none of us want to see? Right? And, and that, I think, is an exercise that teaches real media literacy and also has a chance of affecting change, even if it never affects any change. Those kids will leave the school understanding how to think in the round holistically about the economic, technical, social, uh, and, and market forces that surround the technologies they use. Corey, thank you so much for your time today. I think oh, that's my a pleasure. really interesting note to end on. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. If you want to listen to more interesting interviews about the future of education, please subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us.